Hello, this is John Mangini, Vice President of Marketing with the New Jersey Bankers Association. Welcome to the New Jersey Banker Podcast. Today, our President and CEO, Mike Fuso sits down with Rosemary Alito, Practice Area Leader for Labor, Employment, and Workplace Safety at K&L Gates, to discuss impacts and implications of the recent Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling on New Jersey business and DEI initiatives. Thank you, John, and thank you for joining us, Rosemary. We're here today to discuss the recent Supreme Court decision that struck down affirmative action and removed racial preference from the college admissions process and what implications that that decision may have beyond higher education. So, Rosemary, do you see that the new ruling might open a path that could stifle companies' ability to consider racial diversity in hiring? Well, the short answer to that question is that the opinion addresses higher education, which has consistently been treated differently from employment. But the opinion has, of course, increased the focus on employment-related programs, and some context and background uh, would be useful. The 6-3 majority opinion in Students for Fair Admissions addressed affirmative action in higher education and determined that the use of race as a plus factor in admissions decisions violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. In the higher education context, affirmative action generally means considering a student's race as one factor within a holistic review of the student's application. The majority held that while promoting pluralism, diversity, and other values in education are commendable goals, they were not sufficiently coherent to survive strict scrutiny in the context of providing racial preferences in admissions for an indefinite period of time. While race in itself can no longer be considered uh, as an admissions factor, the ruling does acknowledge that colleges and universities can still consider an applicant's explanation of how race influenced the student in relation to the individual's leadership and character advocacy as it relates to specific admissions-related criteria. Now, Turning to the employment context, which is our topic today, there are two forms of affirmative action, mandatory and voluntary. Mandatory affirmative action is required by applicable law, while voluntary is not. Mandatory affirmative action includes legal mandates applicable to covered federal contractors and subcontractors, which includes many, many employers. Voluntary affirmative action includes diversity-focused initiatives by companies that are not covered contractors. Mandatory affirmative action based on race and gender applies under Executive Order 11246 and the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. These regulations require contractors to assess underrepresentation in their workforce and remedy through good faith efforts such as outreach, recruitment, and training. These regulations also require that employers proactively assess compensation, hiring and promotion systems to identify disparities based on race or gender that could be indicative of disparate treatment or disparate impact discrimination. The Office of Federal Contract Compliance strictly prohibits the use of plus factors, preferences, or quotas in mandatory affirmative action programs. OSCCP even states on its website that affirmative action in employment is legally distinct from affirmative action in higher education admissions because preferences, quotas, 
and set-asides are pro prohibited. Because of this, OFCCP will likely take the position that its affirmative action programs and requirements for employers are not impacted by the Supreme Court's decision. Similarly, voluntary affirmative action programs should not be immediately impacted by the court's ruling. Voluntary affirmative action programs under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, EEOC guidance, and New Jersey's own law against discrimination are similar to the requirements under OFCCP. For a voluntary affirmative action program to be lawful, an employer must demonstrate a manifest imbalance in the workplace based on race or gender when comparing representation to availability. The voluntary program must seek to remedy this imbalance through broader outreach, recruitment, and training. Plus factors, preferences, and quotas are strictly prohibited under existing law, just as they are in mandatory programs. There's less legal risk for the program seeking to directly remedy past discrimination as part of its justification. The Supreme Court has confirmed the permissibility of these programs where there's a manifest imbalance based on race or gender in the workplace. That's, that's a, a, a very uh, complex question, and I appreciate uh, the depth that you went into because uh, it seems like a very simple question, but indeed it's, it's complex. Um, moving forward, because, you know, as, as we could see, there's, there's um, groups out there that will continue to, uh, to move and create this type of, of impact litigation. Um, so based on the direction of this ruling, do you feel that lawyers now, attorneys now have an obligation to advise companies that um, they, they have to either not use um, such strident diversity uh, goals um, or change the way that they're creating uh, the objectives of workplace hiring? Well, as I've said, the Supreme Court decision does not directly impact employment programs for now. But with the increased focus on diversity programs in employment, I would expect attorneys to be advising clients to take a careful look at all of their programs, along with their counsel, to ensure they're consistent with existing guidance from federal agencies like the OFCCP and the EEOC, as well as the New Jersey Division on Civil Rights, um, and that they're complying with existing and developing law. We've seen a recent statement from our Attorney General about the uh, need to continue diversity and inclusion programs. And I expect in the coming months, we're going to see more and more uh, advice and guidance from the Division on Civil Rights and the EEOC. I, I appreciate that answer. Um, it's it's a, a difficult situation um, when we have uh, what seemingly um, law that, that could potentially be moving in one direction and and some social change that's moving in a different direction. And um, we have situations where folks that are HR professionals or DEI professionals in banks um, are, are at the forefront of that change, um, while at the same time, the law appears to be uh, moving differently. So when it comes to these uh, 
initiatives, these DE&I initiatives, and staff that is dedicated to these initiatives. How do you see uh, this case changing either DE&I hiring strategies or other DE&I initiatives? Well, again, I, I think that this case for the time being shouldn't impact the legality of existing diversity and inclusion programs. It has increased uh, scrutiny of those programs, and I think we're going to continue to see uh, litigation and inquiries about, uh, about those programs. I think it's important to remember in considering these issues that it's not a question of uh, the ideal of equality and diversity uh, being subject to scrutiny, but rather how do we legally uh, achieve equality and equal employment opportunity. And some suggestions that our team here uh, has developed and I'm, I'm borrowing uh, from our team, including a former OFCCP director, Craig Lean, include things like this. But diversity focused initiatives, as I've said, are unlikely to be impacted in the short term, but employers should focus those initiatives on non-discrimination in employment, including through proactive trainings, uh, OFCCP-style self-audits, and inclusive work environments, ensuring equal employment opportunities and hiring and advancement, including through outreach, recruitment, elimination of artificial uh, barriers. It's critically important in doing that uh, that employers have affirmative action and diversity programs reviewed by council in light of this increased uh, scrutiny to ensure compliance with existing law and future developments. More formal, mandatory or voluntary affirmative action programs are not likely to be impacted, although employers should strictly follow applicable regulations, EEOC and Law Against Discrimination Division on Civil Rights guidance. And I would say even for employers not covered as contractors under the OFCCP, those regulations include a number of great suggestions of things that employers can uh, do to uh, increase diversity inclusion in their workplace without running afoul of the law. Um, any race conscious initiatives, such as a diverse slate policy, should be reviewed by council and should be based on diversity analytics, where the employer has identified what's referred to as a manifest imbalance in the workplace. That's a significant underrepresentation of a particular group, and that remedy should be narrowly focused on remedying the manifest imbalance. Employment decisions, as in the past, should not consider race or other protected characteristics as a part of uh, that decision. In the event that a complaint is filed with the EEOC or that an impact litigation is filed, employers should be uh, prepared to show that there was no plus factor used in its program, no preference or quota being used. So some large organizations, and, and I appreciate uh, your comments toward the, the narrow tailoring to, to uh, a specific issue. Um, but some large organizations offer leadership training programs that are tailored 
to either specific races or specific ethnicities. How do you see this decision impacting the validity of those programs that are are targeted to by race or by ethnicity? Well, some of the same standards are going to be applied. And again, this is an area where the circumstances are going to be important in evaluating the validity of those of those programs. So employers should be working with their own counsel in evaluating them. So so what I'm hearing um, from our discussion thus far is that it's really important to engage uh, legal counsel um, on all of these decisions and to ensure that um, good intentions don't turn into uh, some type of, of negative litigation. Um, when we when we broaden the question though a bit, um, because indeed um, the University of North Carolina is a government actor and, and I understand the differentiation between higher education and government contracting, um, do you anticipate any impact on government set-asides for either my, minority or women-owned businesses? I know states have a very robust application process, and I know that folks put a lot of time in the certification, and um, like to try to get an understanding of, of what you think this opinion might have on those questions. Well, it's possible there will be an impact at some point, but again, this decision does not directly address those issues. Similar to employment, uh, Supreme Court decision does not directly address government procurement or small business set-asides. Uh, SBA minority-owned and women-owned business certifications allow small businesses owned by members of underserved communities to obtain access to government contracts that are set aside for more general competition. As this involves government action, however, it's possible that the holding that racial preferences and admissions are prohibited under the Equal Protection Clause, which has been applied to the federal government through the Fifth Amendment uh, Due Process Clause, may eventually be applied as a prohibition against similar preferences in the contracting sector as well. But, but again, this is going to be a complicated issue. And at this point, I think it's difficult to uh, predict uh, what is going to be done, although we can probably expect to see uh, action in that area as well. So so the case really begins a uh, a cascading effect for other litigation that would answer some of these questions. I, I appreciate your uh, your candor. Companies that we represent, New Jersey bankers, um, depends, depend on recruitment to gain highly trained, highly qualified individuals from universities. Do you see this decision resulting in a less diverse applicant pool because it appears that this decision will reduce diversity at these universities that we recruit from? Um, I'm not in a position to accurately predict what the impact of the decision is going to be uh, with regard to the uh, pool of talent available for the workplace in the future. But I can say that there are many things that employers can do quite legally and consistent with applicable law to make certain that, for example, all qualified candidates are considered in their recruitment process. 
that any barriers to employment are eliminated, that stereotypes about what makes a successful candidate are eliminated, um, that recruitment efforts cast a wide net. You don't have to recruit just from Harvard and North Carolina in order to get qualified candidates to be workplace. The employees are trained uh, with regard to non-discriminatory uh, interviewing and recruitment procedures. The training is given with regard to conscious and unconscious bias to make certain that uh, they do not uh, infect the recruitment process or the hiring process. And the procedures are established. Um, there are many guidelines available uh, that can be used to try and ensure that discrimination and stereotypes and artificial barriers don't impact uh, the recruitment, uh, the places where recruitment is done and the hiring process. Interesting. So again, we have to, we have to use care in the process. And uh, I, I think it's, I think it's important that, um, you know, folks that are listening to this um, understand um, the fact that this case is narrow, but again, that um, care must be used. The last question I have for you is a little bit more theoretical, and uh, we certainly appreciate you taking the time. According to the Census Bureau, the U.S. population under age 16 is non-white, half the population. What do you think, as a country, do we have as an obligation to educate and train this demographic and to ensure that all Americans are able to achieve the, the very most that, that they are physically and, and mentally able to do in this country? Well, I think it's, it's a fundamental part of our country that education at all levels be available to everyone in the country on an equal basis, that there are no barriers to education and success uh, imposed. You know, if we look at New Jersey, our state has a long history of working to ensure educational opportunities to all of our citizens at all levels. Our New Jersey Supreme Court was a leader in trying to ensure that beginning at an early age, children in our state are given an opportunity to learn and succeed regardless of race, sex, national origin, or socioeconomic circumstances. And I think those efforts are gonna continue. And I expect that New Jersey and the New Jersey courts and the New Jersey legislature are gonna continue in the future to be leaders in ensuring that everyone in our state uh, has an opportunity to learn and succeed. And as we've done in the past, this needs to start at an early point in life. So I am optimistic for the future of educational opportunity here in New Jersey. As, as as are we, you know, New Jersey is, is indeed a microcosm, probably the most diverse state um, in the country. And we see every day folks from various backgrounds achieving 
and and absolutely overachieving and um you know it it is because of of people's desires people's education and the fact that that you know we have this this groundwork that we have laid in this state to uh to to move people and and accelerate them um to to levels that I, that I don't necessarily think um they themselves might have believed um when when uh when they began their journey so i want to thank you very much really appreciate your time it's very very special to have the chance to uh, to speak with rosemary alito and for the nj banker podcast i'm mike afuso <laughs>